We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. During our worship service, before the sermon, four passages were read from the Bible. Psalm 145, Romans chapter 15 verses 14 through 21, Acts chapter 2 verses 42 through 47, and Acts chapter 4 verses 32 through 37. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you. God, help us as we continue to engage our minds and our hearts, to be challenged by your word, and to be the kind of people and the church that you desire us to be. In Christ's name, amen. Hey, let me say that I'm thankful for the opportunity to speak tonight. As I was sitting there, I felt maybe like kind of like the guy on deck, and you know, there's a bunch of people on bases, and the pressure was on. But um, I want to say it's a daunting task because I usually only do this about once every five years, so I'm good to go for another um, four years and ten months. So, <laughs> but um, I am really grateful to all of you. Um, this is the church, and to Aubrey for the opportunity, the confidence, um, and the support that you've given me and my family. You know, the discipline to study and to prepare and to listen for the Spirit's voice, it really is very hard work. And to do that week in and week out is uh, certainly something that the Lord does give to those who are called. Um, and I hope that we can see, I know I've seen in the last two weeks as I prepared, that, that um, I need to affirm more, those who do that. But I think tonight that we can all labor through this together uh, because this is the Lord's work. And so um, I hope this is affirming for all of us and for our church. Now, if you'll turn to the back of the worship guide, this is a, a little bit of audience participation tonight, and look at that top little paragraph on the inside cover, the very back page. It says the purpose statement, and I'd like for us to read this together. We exist to embrace, embody, and spread the gospel of Christ's kingdom throughout Birmingham and the world in word, deed, and community for personal, social, and cultural renewal. Now, for the last couple of weeks, we've been taking this purpose or mission statement and breaking it into very small pieces and chewing on it and thinking about it and explaining it from a biblical foundation, a biblical perspective, and as well as what does it mean for all things new. Christopher Wright, who's a, a missiologist, he wrote a really big, fat book called The Mission of God, um, he says that when you consider the interpretation of the Bible and missions, you can't read about missions and the Bible without reading their implied imperatives. And you have to seek a holistic understanding of missions by a holistic reading of the Bible. Now, this is the same for any aspect about the church, whether it's worship or fellowship or the spiritual formation of children or fellowship uh, that we do together, or vocation, we have to understand, explain, interpret, and contextualize within the framework of the Bible, which is God's story. It's a true story. So just a quick review of the overarching story of the Bible. And you can think of this in terms of the letter C, and there's seven of them. The Bible begins with the creation story. In the beginning, God created and he created everything. He made it perfect. His highest achievement, his crowning achievement was 
human beings made in His likeness and His image. And for a couple of chapters in Genesis, we read how wonderful it is to be in the Garden in Eden. Everything was good. No sin. I mean, it was, it was work, but it was all good. In fact, God says over and over, it is good. It is very good. Now you move to chapter 3, the second C, and there's conflict. Or last week, another C that Aubrey used was catastrophe. And that's a little stronger word. It all fell apart because of a decision that some people made that they were autonomous and they didn't need God. They wanted to be like Him, which is saying, we weren't like, we don't, want to, we don't need you. And so it all fell apart. And all of a sudden, you've got the fall of creation. And for several chapters, we read about the consequences of this sin. Murder and incest and family violence. And even more, we're going to build a tower so God can come down to us. I mean, extreme arrogance, all resulting from an act that created catastrophe. Now, if you move farther along, God begins to communicate with one man, Abram, the third C, communication. And he says, you're going to be a blessing. And out of this communication, a community, the fourth C, arises. It's the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, to honor what he started and what he said he's going to do. I'm going to bless the nations. Creation, conflict or catastrophe, communication, a community. From Genesis 12, which is the pivotal point in the Bible, all the way to the end of the New Testament, the book of Micah, it's the story of this community moving, trying to love God, but as we all know, many times failing God. The story of that community. And then we flip to the fifth C, beginning in the book of Matthew, Christ and the kingdom of God. The ultimate C of the story, Jesus Christ, the highest point of the story, God saying, I'm coming to earth. I'm going to make all things right. And to really begin the story of redemption through the death and the resurrection of Christ. Christ ascends to heaven and leaves the sixth sea. The church is born. So the work continues. We're here tonight as the church, the sixth sea. And this, the, the beginning after the Gospels, the book of Acts to Revelation is the story of the church. We have Paul's letters to the church, what we're supposed to be doing. And the final C, the seventh C, is the completion of the story. It's the book of Revelation. And actually you can think of it as the recreation. And it goes all the way back to Genesis 1 again. So that's kind of our overarching where I want to take us tonight. And uh, we, we will probably review that for many years to come, because I think it's very important that we understand that. But tonight, we're going to focus on one specific banner that we will fly very high on the All Things New flagpole. And this is the banner of evangelism. And Aubrey explained it last week in a, in a more general sense. Um, there's a CD on the back table if you weren't able to be here, or you can download it on the website. I encourage you to listen. Tonight's theme is a little bit more pragmatic. How will we do this? if you will. And it's the first of two parts, this week and next week. Tonight, we're going to be talking about spreading the gospel in word and deed. And next week, Aubrey's going to talk to us about spreading the gospel in community. Now, this banner is going to fly very high because it's our mission statement. It's our purpose statement. We embrace, embody, and spread the gospel. Now, we're defining spreading the gospel as the announcement of God's rule and reign over all of creation. 
David Bosch, B-O-S-C-H-E, was a professor of missiology at the University of South Africa. He tragically died in a car accident in 1992. Uh, Before he was the professor and head of the missiology department, he was a missionary for 14 years. Now, he has a great definition of evangelism in his book, Transforming Mission. I want to read it to you. Don't try to take notes because it's, it's about seven lines long. But maybe there's a part of it you'll just latch onto and go, yeah, because that's what I did. This is the way he defines evangelism. That dimension and activity of the church's mission, which, by word and deed, and in the light of particular conditions and a particular context, offers every person and community everywhere a valid opportunity to be directly challenged to a radical reorientation of their lives. A reorientation which involves such things as deliverance from slavery to the world and its powers, embracing Christ as Savior and Lord, becoming a living member of His community, the church, being enlisted into His service of reconciliation, peace, and justice on earth, and being committed to God's purposes of placing all things under the rule of Christ. So a very wide and deep definition of evangelism. And that's what we're going to work out of tonight. Spreading the gospel by word and deed. I'd like to propose three things tonight to you. First, word and deed was Jesus' mode of ministry. Second, word and deed are not mutually exclusive. And third, we must not let love deteriorate into patronizing charity. First point, word and deed was Jesus' mode of ministry. We know that in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And Eugene Peterson says, and he moved into the neighborhood, Jesus became one of us, with us. Fully God, fully man, but with us. Jesus met immediate needs, whether it was healing, raising people from the dead, preaching to them, calling them to repentance, but he addressed all spheres of their life. Now, this style of ministry didn't just authenticate his divinity. It showed us that he himself was living under the rule and the reign of God. Now, let me encourage you, uh, over the next couple of weeks as we're involved in this story of evangelism and, and um, modes of evangelism, word and deed, um, you might want to read the book of Luke. Read the whole thing. It's very interesting because this is what you're going to find. You don't have to look very far. You don't have to go very far with the words or the verses. When you find Jesus preaching, a few words later, guess what? He's healing. Or vice versa. When Jesus heals, a few words or verses later, He preaches. We find in Luke chapter 24, following His resurrection on the road to Emmaus, this is what they said actually to Jesus. They didn't know He was Jesus. They're confessing he was a powerful prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. Now, you could, this always is dangerous to boil things down into its very simplest form. This is the invitation that Jesus offered and the explanation to those he came into contact with. This is what he said. These things you see and hear mean that the reign of God has come among you. Receive it and enter it. Now, let's break word and deed into its two parts. When we think about proclaiming, the word part, now this is whether we're listening 
or whether we're speaking. There's three kind of principles at work. I don't think we think about this, but this is kind of what's happening. It's happening to you right now. There's three things involved. Intelligence, character, and goodwill. And Aristotle identified these three principles that the communicator must possess in order for the audience to, to listen, to receive, and to believe what the speaker is saying. Now, to be believed, the speaker must be perceived to be informed, knowledgeable, and competent in the subject matter with a capacity for valid reasoning, good judgment, and wisdom. To be trusted, the speaker must be perceived as a person of honesty, virtue, and integrity. To be believed and trusted, the speaker needs to be perceived as for the audience, on their side, more concerned for the audience's welfare than for self-gain. Now, if we, if we think of sort of the postmodern context, or more modern, what we're kind of used to, you might ask these questions this way. Does the speaker really believe what they say? Do they live by what they say? And does it really make any difference? When considering the proclamation aspect of evangelism, we can be suddenly gripped with fear if we take these questions too far. And I think sometimes we do that, and therefore we remain silent. Consider this. Daryl Guter, he writes a lot on the missional aspect of the church. He says this, The churches of North America have been dislocated from their prior social role of chaplain to the culture and society and have lost their once privileged positions of influence. Religious life in general and the churches in particular have increasingly been relegated to the private spheres of life. And too readily the churches have accepted this as their proper place. And at the same time, the churches have become so accommodated to the American way of life that they're now domesticated. And it's no longer obvious what justifies their existence as particular communities. The religious loyalties that churches seem to claim and the social functions that they actually perform are at odds with each other. Discipleship has been absorbed into citizenship. So the obvious question in light of Guter's observation is this. How does the church go about representing the reign of God among its neighbors and to those afar? The most likely location for an answer to these questions is the mission of Jesus. His mission represents the most direct and complete expression of God's mission in the world. Therefore, our own mission must take its cues from the way God's mission unfolded in the sending of Jesus into the world for its salvation. In Jesus' way of carrying out God's mission, we discover that the church is to represent God's reign as its community, its servant, and its messenger. Jesus' healings, his exorcisms, calming of the storms, feeding of the multitudes, raising the dead to life, these were all signs. And these signs revealed that in Jesus' life, under the authority of God, the reign of God was at hand. The kingdom of God is here, his constant message. The deeds themselves were simply doing what ought to be done under God's reign. And they also point to what God intends the world to be like when God's reign comes. They represent what God fully intends to bring about at the world's consummation when all that creation was envisioned 
and imagined to be is made finally true. The actions of Jesus show forth the horizon of the coming world of shalom, peace, justice, freedom, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Considering again the book of Luke, he presents an ideal for the Christian community which it always must strive for, constantly return to, and discover anew if it's to have that unity of spirit and purpose essential for an effective witness. The church as the light to the world, is also the salt. And we have to accept and realize that as Christ followers, Christ imitators, we're to do all that He commanded by teaching others to do the same. This is the great commandment. And this obedience will produce a work that will validate what we say and what we propose. That is the fruit of repentance and the Holy Spirit's work of conversion in us. This is Jesus' mode of ministry, word and deed. Now, word and deed are not mutually exclusive components of evangelism. You can't have one without the other. A couple of years ago, my mom went to a bridal shower for some distant relative. And she was telling me all about it and how they were going around the room and opening the gifts. And this rather large kind of flat box came. It was really heavy, and she said in one end it was obvious and kind of like the other. And the bride-to-be opened the box, and inside was a skillet, an iron skillet, and a Bible with this note. If one doesn't work, use the other. Now, those are, that's a great example of mutually exclusive. Now, word and deed, not word or deed. Word and deed. You can't have one without the other. Again, David Bosch, the Christian faith never exist except as translated into a culture. Now, pick up your worship guide again. Look on the uh, page one, I believe it is, under the reflection statement, and I want you to look at the second reflection. A Christianity which has lost its vertical dimension has lost its salt and is not only insipid in itself, but useless to the world. But a Christianity which would use the vertical preoccupation as a means to escape from its responsibility for and in the common life of man is a denial of the incarnation. That's a pretty powerful statement. And I think as we read that and mull over that, I think that resonates well with us. And I think that that's true because we know it's true. It's the way that we were created. It's how God designed us for relationship, for friendship, for accountability. Remember, word and deed was Jesus' ministry, and he constantly stressed this aspect in his teaching and his lifestyle. Again, Christopher Wright talking about missions. He says that missions may not always begin with evangelism, but mission that doesn't ultimately include declaring the word in the name of Christ, the call to repentance, the faith, and obedience has not completed its task. It's a defective mission, not holistic mission. Evangelism is only possible when the community that evangelizes, the church, is a radiant manifestation of the Christian faith and exhibits an attractive lifestyle. The medium is the message. What we are and do is no less important in this respect than what we say. If the church is to impart to the world a message of hope and love, faith, justice, and peace, something of this should become visible, audible, and tangible 
in the church itself. And this is the passage that Alan read to us from Acts. It's a very familiar passage as you've thought about the church and as you've read through the New Testament. You know, their witness of life, of a believing community, it says was attractive. People were attracted to it. And this attraction prepares the way for the gospel, the announcement of God's rule and reign. And where it's absent, the credibility of our evangelism is dangerously impaired. And we know this saying, they practiced what they preached. So the twofold process, word and deed, is the validation of our invitation to this message. Repent, be forgiven, be healed, and live under the rule and reign of Christ. And this has to be translated into the particular context of the community with which we find ourselves. The gospel is never articulated in a vacuum, but in a particular context that are both affirmed and challenged by the claims of Christ. Now, here's a warning. This translation can be dangerous. It can be risky. But it guides the church and its behaviors to action that demonstrate the good news of God's reign in Christ. Word and deed was Jesus' mode of ministry. Word and deed are not mutually exclusive. The third point. This is the deed part. We must not allow love, which was the central message of Christ, to deteriorate into patronizing charity, spiritual superiority, or condescending benevolence. This is especially true when we cross the culture. In the late 4th century or the early 5th century, Celtic pirates invaded northeast England. They captured young men and returned to their native land and sold these prisoners as slaves. One of the young that was captured was a boy named Patrick, and you know him as St. Patrick. Yeah. During his years of enslavement, Patrick was a cattle herder. This, this story kind of has some other familiar stories that make us think of some other people. He was a cattle herder, and during his loneliness in the wilderness with the winds, the stars at night, the trees, all that good stuff, Patrick sensed the presence of the triune God. He became a Christian as more and more of the love and fear of God came over him. And after six years, he had a dream. And this dream was, there's going to be a ship waiting for you to escape. Sure enough, he wakes up the next morning, there's the ship. It's a sign from God. He bolts the ship and returns back to his native land. Listen to this. At the age of 48, another angel appears to him in a dream. And in this dream, he's carrying a letter from his captors. This is, you know, 30 years prior. This is what the letter said. Please come and walk among us. So guess what? He woke up the next morning, returned back to his captors in Ireland. Now, Patrick was an, we would say he is an incarnational Christian. He went and lived among his enemy. Among his greatest acts was to live among the culture. Story is, instead of building a monastery to train pastors off the beaten path in the woods outside of town, guess what they did? They set up shop right in the middle of town on Main Street and invited people to come in. Story says, as seekers spent time with the Celtic Christian community, they found themselves believing what the Christians taught. Now, Celtic Christians, 
discovered that the presence of seekers was an authentic sign, and it provided an additional incentive for them to live faithful lives. So their deeds had to match their words. Now, there are other things that were happening in this period of history, other modes of evangelism and mission. They were practiced outside of this tradition, and this was the thought of those uh, practicing it on the other people. These horrible pagans, they live such horrible lives. We've got to go do something to them. And this became their dominant motive for mission. It wasn't they are objects of the love of Christ. I would say this is colonialism in its worst form. And in many ways, it usurps the role of the Holy Spirit. We must be cautious that evangelism does not reduce people to functions. There's an ancient Chinese poem that says this, Go to the people, live among them, learn from them, love them, start with what they know, build on what they have. I think Aubrey's going to talk more about this next week as we talk about community. In the 1970s, there was an, another Jesus movement, not on the West Coast, but you had to go a lot farther in Australia. And, and one of the leaders was none other than John Smith. I'm sure they probably called him captain. He said, your heart has to be in it. You have to identify with people so much that you have common cause with them, whether it's their love for nature or their quest for justice. This is what he said happened out of the Jesus movement in Australia in the 70s. They became our people. We joined them. We involved them in the life of the community and the fellowship and the celebration. And we didn't even know when evangelism ended and mutual celebration began. I love that. When we look at the book of Acts, we see that the revolutionary nature of the early Christian mission manifested itself in the new relationship that came into being in the community. Jew and Roman, Greek and barbarian, free and slave, rich and poor, woman and man. They were all accepted as brothers and sisters. This, um, this movement was, uh, it caused a lot of astonishment in the Roman Empire. And it wasn't because of political motivations. It was because of social implications. And it was because that they began not just to speak a new language that was foreign in that land, but they began to live it. It was a thing of power and a thing of action. And it was the social gospel in the very best sense of the word. And it wasn't practiced to lure outsiders to the church, but it just became a natural expression because of the love and faith in Christ. Let me give another warning here. When we think about the book of Acts, we often quote the early church as the ideal. Oh, if we could be like the book of Acts. Her mind drifts quickly to the institutional church, the opposite. We contrast this with the idea of movement. We hear words like movement, organic, emergent, and we think we can't have it both ways. We have this tension. Institution or movement? Now, it can't be pure and exclusive movement at the same time, okay? It can't be something that survives for centuries. It's just, it's like this is a starting church. 
I mean, it's, there's tremendous joy in my opinion. Um, most every week, the, the page is like this. It's blank. There's not much on there. We don't have any hoops. We don't have any rules. This is, this is great. Will this last forever? Can it be both? Daryl Guter again. I read a lot of Daryl Guter. I really like him. Sorry, I'm going to put you through listen to another long quote of his. I have to give him credit because I wish I would have said this. And I've got to see if I can get the rhythm right. Our main point of censure should therefore not be that the movement became an institution, but that when this happened, it lost much of its verve. Its white-hot convictions poured into the hearts of the first adherents, cooled down, and became crystallized codes, solidified institutions, and petrified dogmas. The prophet became a priest of the establishment, charisma became office, and love became routine. The horizon was no longer the world, but the boundaries of the local parish. The impetuous missionary torrent of earlier years was tamed into a still-flowing rivulet and eventually into a stationary pond. It is this development that we have to deplore. Institution and movement may never be mutually exclusive categories. Neither may church and mission, and neither will word and deed. We have to remember, this is about the rule and the reign of Christ's kingdom. So my question tonight, is the church as a whole reflecting the wholeness of God's redemption? Is the church, and I'm thinking here, of the local expression in the community with which it finds itself, aware of all that God's missions summons us to participate in, is the church, through the combined engagement of all its members, applying the redemptive power of the cross of Christ to all the effects of sin and evil in the surrounding lives, society, and environment. We must rediscover the ability and the inclination to find God in the place of action so that others might find Him there as well. Word and deed was Jesus' mode of ministry. Word and deed are not mutually exclusive. And we must not allow love to deteriorate into patronizing charity. I think that we need to work hard to move evangelism from an act of recruiting those outside the church to an invitation of companionship. The church, we would witness that the hunger for the hope of God who reigns in love and attends for the good of the whole earth, that's our motivation. We would testify that we have heard the announcement that such a reign is coming and it's indeed already breaking into the world. We would confirm that we've heard the open welcome and we receive it daily. And we would invite others to join us as we've also been extended God's welcome. To those who we invite, the church would offer itself to assist their entrance into the reign of God and to travel with them as co-pilgrims through repentance, worship, and service. Here lies the path for the renewal of the heart of the church and its evangelism the spreading of the gospel through word and deed. Let's pray. Father, help us to see that our unifying mission of your rule and reign is central to the gospel message. Help us to submit to your will for us as individuals 
and as a community of faith that we will proclaim and live out the truth of the gospel. Help us to be authentic in our mission of proclaiming, inviting, sharing, and working for the glory of your name and your kingdom. In Christ's magnificent name, amen.